0: Welcome back to I, Jen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shee.
1: And I'm Jill Wine-Banks, and I am virtually shaking in excitement <laughs> and from having run upstairs to change pins. I was going to wear a January 6th Jill's pin, but... The verdict came in minutes ago in the E. Jean Carroll trial, and I am now wearing a pink pussy hat and an octopus. And for anyone who's following that trial, you know why I have chosen those pins. Uh, one witness testified that he was like an octopus attacking her, and the other is his own statement about what he grabs. So it's a new meaning for the pink pussy hat.
0: Jill, your pins are amazing. Well, today, like you said, we were supposed to talk about January sixth, but this E Jean Carroll verdict uh, came down. I'm wondering, should we start off with that? uh, And then no, I think we
1: should. We we can use our chit chat for that. Let's go right to Tim. Sounds good. Tim is here. Let's go.
0: Yeah, so we have Tim Heafy with us to talk about why January 6th is important today. And going forward uh, into the 2024 election, um, Tim Heafy was the Chief Investigative Counsel for the United States House Select Committee on the January 6th attack. And before that, he served as United States Attorney for the Western District of Virginia. And he is now a white-collar criminal defense attorney at Far Gallagher in New York. Tim, it's so great to see you. Thanks so much for joining us uh, today.
2: Sure, Victor and Jill. Really appreciate the invitation. Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you. So let's get right into the subject, which you know some people are going like, okay, January sixth. Why does that matter today? Um, you were part of a committee that did phenomenal work in investigating. That was the January sixth House Committee. And so let's let's review first what that was all about, and walk our audience through what you and the lawyers uh, and other investigators and the House members on the committee did to frame the events in a way um, that showed the American public what took place before January 6th, on January 6th, and after January 6th?
2: Yeah, Jen, you can't look at January 6th by itself in a vacuum. It really was part of a continuum of events, really, that stretches beyond 2020. There's been a disturbing rise of domestic violent extremist activity back to Charlottesville, where where I live, where I served as U.S. attorney, and even before that, and it's continued after that. And one of the things the select committee wanted to do was to put January 6th in context. We found that what happened was a very specifically planned, multi-part plan to disrupt the joint session. And President Trump and his co-conspirators started out by trying to assert election fraud claims in the courts, they were unsuccessful. They then pivoted to putting pressure on state officials to try to take action to send fake elector certificates to Washington, and conduct investigations of this non-existent fraud, pressure on the Justice Department, ultimately on Vice President Pence. And when none of that worked, the last prong in this plan was to send this angry, violent mob to the Capitol with the specific intent we found, to disrupt the transfer of power. A pretty shocking and harrowing set of facts that I, I think our report lays bare.
0: So there's been a lot of talk about who the audience was for these hearings. On one hand, I think it could be seen as the American people. On the other hand, it can be seen as the Department of Justice. Was there an intended audience here, and who was it?
2: No, Victor, I mean, I think we went into this. I went into this thinking, look, about a third of America... Uh, already believe that President Trump was a danger to democracy. Another third of America will always believe in him and would see our effort as not credible. So therefore, there's kind of a middle third of people in this country that I think are remain persuadable or open-minded about him and the broader issues that we identified. And I personally kind of looked at that, that middle third as our, car, our core audience. I think the Department of Justice became a core audience. I think it's pretty clear that it wasn't until we started to find some facts, and those facts were presented at hearings and were reported, that it kind of forced them to take a look at some of those issues as possible crimes. So I think we were ahead of them and maybe put some pressure on them by finding some facts that suggest a violation of federal criminal statute.
1: It's really interesting that you did the one-third, 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 because I think statistics now show that we are no longer really a two-party country. A third are and a third are, but the middle third are lean one way or the other, but they aren't really affiliated. And I think it's really important, both in campaigning and in persuading and showing to keep that in mind, that there is a third of the country that is persuadable, that can be subject to evidence that's gathered and presented in a cogent way. So let's talk about the evidence gathering process that you used and who you work closely with in that in terms of, you know, and and did you coordinate with the Department of Justice? Because a lot of people think that it was sort of like, well, if you do it, then they don't have to Or if they do it, you don't, you know, let's talk about all of that. How how you got it, and, you know, what role did the Justice Department play? What role did the FBI play? What role did your own investigative team play?
2: Yeah, Joe, it was pretty independent. We, We had conversations with DOJ. We wanted information from them because they had already charged a lot of people with crimes, and we were hopeful that we would get access to those people or at least what they said as we tried to put together. Was responsible for putting the riot together. They were very resistant to share information with us. They traditionally don't share information about ongoing investigations with Congress. So it was, they wanted information from us. They asked for all of our transcripts and access to what we were finding, but they weren't willing to share that with us. And I think the Attorney General was also very concerned about ensuring that the department was not seen as politically motivated. Mm -hmm. And coordination with a congressional committee might have given the impression that they were somehow motivated by politics or partisan. So there was not much, there was really not any coordination. There was some communication with the department and frankly with the Fulton County investigators in Georgia. They similarly were looking at some of the same facts as we were. But we conducted our own investigation. We hired a lot of investigative counsel. We hired some experts to look at uh, particular issues with which they were previously familiar. So we kind of created from scratch an investigative team, about 55 employees, half of which were lawyers. We ended up hiring 14 former federal prosecutors, not because we were trying to make a criminal case, but because the lawyers with experience that's relevant, asking questions, devouring large amounts of information, deciding what's relevant, and then thinking about a presentation are people that honed that skill largely in the criminal justice world. So we ended up with a lot of former AUSAs who were part of our team. And we had five different investigative teams, each of which was sort of focused on a a subset of the investigation.
1: Can you describe two things for me? One, the five different teams, because I think that is Very interesting. But I also want to explore before you get to that. You said that they weren't willing to share with you. And I think it's important. I can understand why that is with an ongoing investigation and the secrecy of grand jury testimony and how the Department of Justice operates as to why they would not, during the pendency of an investigation, share. But I think a lot of people in our audience will not understand that and will think that it's something evil. Do, did you consider yeah. it evil or understandable?
2: People don't consider it evil and it's frankly, you know, consistent with their normal approach. No. Right. When when they're developing evidence, and let's say they have a, a cooperating witness who's in the a member of the Proud Boys who has told them what he did and what others did. If that person then gives a, a statement to us, There will inevitably be some potentially small inconsistencies. The more times a witness tells a story, the more material there is for potential impeachment or cross-examination of that witness. So the department, and I was there myself and worked there for years, just wants to keep its evidence as as pristine and unaffected by other interviews or other other information as possible. And again, part of this is congressional oversight. They're willing to submit information to Congress, but not investigative information. That has been a DOJ policy. goes back to a memo about the Lois Lerner case that goes back to the 1980s, and it's enshrined in this document that the department routinely cites when they get requests from Congress, and they did that with us. So there are good reasons, institutional reasons for that. Now, the five teams, like our scope, Jill, was really broad. It was investigate the facts and circumstances surrounding the attack on the Capitol. We had to kind of put our hands around that and and try to come up with some kind of structure. So we came up with this sort of five uh, interlocking teams. Two of them were what happened at the Capitol. There was the blue team and the red team, either side of the fence, so to speak, at the Capitol. The blue team was focused on law enforcement and military. What information did they have in advance? How did they manage the event in real time? The National Guard deployment, the interagency law enforcement cooperation. Red was focused on the organization of the riot, right? The Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, how much organization was there? How how much did these groups and individuals work together? Red, because so many of them in the crowd were sort of MAGA supporters. We zoomed out from either side of the fence to the really important context in which the riot occurred, and that was where the Purple and the Gold teams came into play. Purple goes back to what I was saying at the very beginning of our conversation. The rise in domestic violent extremism, writ large, reaching back historically, there were events at state capitals over the course of the year, the sort of broader pattern that we're fortunately experiencing in America, that was the focus of the Purple Team. We an addition of social media and how electronic sources are used to recruit and organize those groups. And then the Gold Team was really focused on the election. So many people, as you know, were at the Capitol, were focused on this false narrative that the election was going. So the Gold Team developed. This kind of political coup the, the multi-part plan that we ultimately described a lot of that was from the gold team because they were focused on this narrative of election fraud and finally the green team was funding streams like who was paying for it we wanted to figure out whether there were you know domestic or international uh, wealthy individuals or organizations that were, were paying for some of this activity all of those teams were distinct distinct a senior investigative council and some people that were assigned to each but they had to work closely together. So all the team leads and I would meet every Monday morning and talk about what we've learned, talk about where we're going, ensuring that we were coordinated as we pursued the investigation.
1: I, I just want to comment that you mentioned that this goes back to the 80s, the policy of the not sharing the information, but actually this was an issue during Watergate in the early 70s where you had simultaneous investigation by the special prosecutor and by the uh, special committee under Senator Irvin. And you had the exact issue that you raised, which is witnesses would come in and talk to us, and then they would go and testify. And if there was any slight deviation in testimony, you run into that impeachment issue. And it's inevitable that when you're telling the truth, it's going to deviate as you remember different issues, or you use different phraseology, which can be interpreted differently. So it's a really important point for people to know. And like you, we were divided. You know, everybody thinks that Watergate was just the case I was on, which was the obstruction of justice. And um, it wasn't. I mean, there was a campaign contributions task force. There was a plumber's task force, a dirty tricks task force, because there were so many different areas of criminal activity that we needed to focus into the different crimes that were committed. So it it's, seems in, in ways similar. And uh, now we're waiting to see, we, we know what happened with your committee. Now we're waiting to see what happens with yeah. the special counsel and with uh, Fonnie Willis in Georgia and with everybody else that's involved in looking criminally and civilly at the different uh, aspects of activity before during and after January
2: 6th yes so, I, I think criminal charges are coming right we recommended to the uh, attorney general that he evaluate the violations of four separate criminal statutes I think he actually has the ability to get information beyond what the committee right. got right they have the ability very quickly to litigate privilege assertions and they've been very successful thus far in convincing the chief judge of the D.C. District Court, and then ultimately the D.C. Circuit to overrule witnesses' privilege assertions. So they're getting some people to answer questions that they did not us. I think that it's only going to make the case of President Trump's specific intent to disrupt the joint session even stronger. We, we built sort of a, a wall around several of those holes of privilege assertion. So I think we essentially got the core story, but now those holes are going to be filled, and I think it's only going to make the wall stronger. So I, I expect, yeah. just having this hard for a year and a half, that uh, the Department of Justice will bring criminal charges. I think Fonnie Willis and the Fulton County DA will similarly bring criminal charges based on this conspiratorial mm-hmm. conduct in joint session.
0: So we definitely want to get to the Department of Justice's response or hopefully eventual response to this. But I want to go back to um, the process that you just laid out, because that was fascinating. You mentioned just kind of social media and and the footage that you all had. I mean, can you talk more about that process of choosing the footage to show and what footage ended up not being shown and kind of how you made that determination?
2: Yeah, Victor, it's a blessing and a curse as an investigator to have an event (laughs) that was documented to that degree. I mean, there's so much material that was live streamed from participants in the riot, body cams of police officers. The Capitol complex has over 800 different cameras, internal and external, all of that footage is available to us. And you're looking as you review all of that for for sort of seminal events, right? For instances that are important or demonstrate larger pattern. And, And somebody had to go through all of that with a big picture sense of, what is important or what are the larger patterns that were developing. So it was useful, and we ended up getting a lot of really important video and audio that we used in our hearings that were important in, as we examined witnesses. But there was just a hell of a lot of it that, while it was interesting while it was useful, it did not ultimately make it into the report or make it into a hearing because it was redundant or it didn't necessarily advance our understanding of it. Um, so we had great uh, cooperation ask, from the uh, yeah. yeah, go ahead, Victor.
0: Oh, I, I was gonna ask, I mean, I mean uh, given I all of the footage and how hard it was to, to compile all that footage, I mean, what do you make of Kevin McCarthy's um, decision to release 41,000 exclusive uh, hours of, of footage to Tucker Carlson?
2: Yeah, so what I was just about to say, we uh, had that Capitol Police footage and body cam footage with the agreement that before we used any of it publicly, we would have a conversation with the Capitol Police, with the Metropolitan Police, because they were very concerned that the location of those 800 and some cameras is in the future creates a security risk. So they wanted to minimize the use of it. And they wanted to maybe zoom in on an image or obscure other things. There was also the issue of evacuation routes for the vice president and others that the video depicted. They were concerned about that information getting out and being an ongoing security concern because you know, we have to be careful that this doesn't happen again. And the release of that footage yeah. makes it easier for people to potentially you know, commit future attacks on the Capitol armed with that information. So I think it's hugely irresponsible for, uh, for the new speaker to give all that footage without any such understanding to a news outlet. It's also been irresponsibly used, right? Tucker Carlson has used it selectively and very misleadingly. He shows footage of Capitol Police officers walking next to the QAnon shaman, for example, and suggests that they're escorting rioters. That's ridiculous. What they're doing is de-escalating and doing good police work to try to get people to leave the Capitol because they can't put their hands on and arrest the thousands of people that were inside the building because they were outmanned. So so the the sort of selective clips and use of it to forward this, this false narrative is also terribly irresponsible, predictable and irresponsible. So so a, a, a real strong negative reaction to the speaker's decision to release that.
1: Prediction. Well, in, in addition to the negatives you've pointed out, it seems to me that the unfairness of giving it exclusively to one yeah. very biased news source is also equally horrible. That if you're going to do yeah. that, despite the danger of releasing the camera locations, et cetera, you have to give it to everybody. You can't pick Tucker Carlson. But um, okay, so let's look at you also besides this very riveting footage, you had testimony from a wide range of witnesses, you know, Capitol Police and just many, many others. You had legal scholars, you had government officials, you had former aides to the president. Um, Was there two questions, I guess? One or two witnesses that you really wanted to question that you didn't get, that you think that probably justice will get? And was there any one or two that you think were so compelling that they really added to the public narrative that we as
2: American citizens got? Let me take the last question first. I think Attorney General Barr, Pat Cipollone, and Cassidy Hutchinson, if I had to sort of pick witnesses that were... Most important to our work, uh, it was them. Right, they were all very close to the president. They all worked hand in glove with him for years before this. So they were loyal to the president. They were not doing this because they had some political axe to grind. Right, they were all adults in the room and stood up and did the right thing, or tried to convince him to do the right thing at the time. Cassidy was particularly important because she was also, you know, right in the center of working with Mark Meadows, a person who would not talk to us. Her ability to share with us a lot of conversations in which he participated sort of was one of those bricks around the hole that I was talking about before that was tremendously important. If there are people that we didn't hear from that I would have liked to, the two that I would say I would put first on the list are Mark Meadows and Dan Scavino. Both of them
0: Mm.
2: were two of the closest people to the president on the day of the riot and around that time. Meadows was centrally involved in the multi-part plan to disrupt the joint session, Would would say whatever he thought the audience wanted to hear. Right? Some people told us, Meadows said, Yeah, the president's coming around, we're gonna get him to acknowledge this defeat. And then he would tell other people and often text other people, oh, you know, we're keeping up the good fight and you know, this isn't over yet. So so he was two-faced and never consistent what he saw and heard and did was central. And Dan Scavino was the president's pipeline to the outside world. He controlled the president's feed. He often was was, dict, was getting t- uh, tweets dictated and was reviewing tweets for the president. He was with them at all times. So the two of them would have given us even more of a bird's eye view of President Trump's state of mind all the way up to uh, and on January 6th. And I hope that justice gets them. I know that they've been subpoenaed. I don't know. They have, now, they might have Fifth Amendment privileges. I don't know if a DOJ will get them, but they're justifiably high on Jack Smith's
1: list. And, and speaking of Jack Smith or the Justice Department, um, and you've talked about some of the cooperation and some of the non-cooperation with them, but it's viewed that you really put together, the January 6th committee, put together a very quick investigation and report and that it's taking DOJ a really long time. Can you comment about the pace of your work versus the pace of DOJ?
2: Yeah, um, I will say that it's clear to me that they got a late start, that they were focused initially on what I called the blue-collar cases, right? the people that were uh, violent at the Capitol. Uh, that took up a lot of space and is still the largest criminal investigation in the history of the Department. I also think there was a reticence to dive into this political world. I think the Attorney General and, and others, I think, were concerned about the department not getting dragged into what was a political dispute. And It wasn't until our evidence showed this isn't just a political dispute, this is a, a political coup, right, a, a potentially an attack on democracy that involved people at the highest levels of government that they kind of realized, okay, we can't avoid this investigation, we have to look into it. Now, I think they've caught up and they've gone beyond where we were. They're just doing their homework. Jill, you know this from your time in government as well. Look, If you're going to bring a case of this magnitude, you have to be completely thorough. You have to give absolutely every possible source of relevant information. You have to reach out to him or her to try to get that information. It is a big deal and it should be a big deal that only comes about after a very thorough very meticulous investigation. So I think they're marching through that. I think they're close to the end, given some of the people that they have recently gotten before the grand jury, but it just takes a while to get all of that evidence uh, and have it all be part of the consideration before decisions. So, you know,
1: Tim, it's so interesting because um, on the hashtag sisters in law podcast, we discussed this and I talked about, you know, not only how long it takes to get all your ducks in a row and to make sure you've got all the exculpatory evidence as well as all the incriminating evidence, and that the standard may be higher when you're investigating a former president. And um, there was at least one person who said, that's terrible, that's against the constitution to have a higher standard. But it's a reality that when you're prosecuting, you wanna be sure you can convict and it's not a question of that it's a different standard it's a can i convict is there going to be a jury that's going to find that i have proved this beyond a reasonable doubt knowing that doubt will be greater on behalf of someone like a former president and so it's just yeah. a reality
2: if you're going to swing at the king then you better knock him out right like you, you got to be ready yeah. to to come hard if you did come at all and, and that's right
0: So I'm wondering um, what you make of Jack Smith's pace so far, and and, um, whether or not you think there's a risk that his expansion of the investigation into fake electors, plus I guess investigating wherever facts lead, including fundraising on the lie of fraud, will run out the clock before the primaries.
2: No, look, Victor. I think all that stuff is part of it. Uh, I think the fundraising stuff is crucial. I, I think a lot of what motivated this attack on the Capitol is a fraud scheme. You look at President Trump's whole life, it's been a series of, of grifts, really. And this fundraising on the Stop the Steal narrative was so successful. They raised $250 million after the election was called for President Biden and before the inauguration, just on this Stop the Steal narrative. And he continues to raise money today on that same Narrative. So, false statements in political fundraising, texts and emails that were incessantly going out saying this was going to some election defense fund, which was not true, making all these false claims. That sounds to me like mail or wire fraud, and therefore is a very viable theory and a really important part of the broader context if you're going to understand these events. Um, the fake electors, right, those are false statements. Those are 1,001 violations, 18 U.S.C. section 1001. Knowing submission to Congress of a document that purports to be official, like the official slate from the state, that's a crime and a crucial part of the context. So I don't see him straying beyond the core narrative. I think these are all part and parcel to what is really a complicated pattern of activity, all of which ends at the Capitol on January 6th.
0: Yeah, and so we started off the episode by talking about the the divide in our nation, the third of people who support Trump, the third of people in the middle, the third of people on the left. But do you feel like the January 6th hearings reached any of that third that supports Trump? And if not, do you think it's possible to get those facts in them at this point?
2: Yeah, it's a it's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. I mean, a lot of America watched how much America had their minds changed. It's really hard to tell. Look, I believe that facts matter, that that we're not beyond that in this country. The problem, Victor, is that a lot of people in this country no longer believe in the sources of those facts that most of us believe in. They don't believe in the legitimacy of government. They don't believe in the court. They don't believe in the media, for example. They don't believe in higher education or, or science, right? There's there's a, yeah, a fundamental yeah. cynicism about the sources of information. So what I look at and see plainly, hey, this election, President Biden won this election. There's just no factual dispute about that. They question that conclusion because they question the messengers or the fact gatherers. And that, to me, is the fundamental divide in America. It's those who believe in systems and the social you know, compact. And those that have lost faith in those institutions can no longer believe in it—that that that is a really dangerous thing that if we don't talk about it and get a handle on we're going to face you know repeats of, of this in the future.
1: I'd expand on that a little bit by saying that there's also the people who do believe in the system at least on an academic level but refuse to accept facts and who are acting. And I'm talking about members of Congress who voted not guilty despite this overwhelming evidence. You could say, I don't want to impeach him for this. You cannot say he was not guilty of what the evidence clearly showed. And that is a danger to democracy as much, but let's, let's um, maybe wrap up this segment. Um, uh, about this topic just by talking about legislation that could result from your report and i mean it's i, I actually let's see i got my copy here oh yeah uh, report here. and and guys if you haven't seen it it's big it's heavy pages. Um, it, yeah, yeah so wow in, in terms of legislation some has passed most is just sort of sitting there doing nothing and so let's talk about what those takeaways are. And yeah. and
2: yeah, so the one that passed is the Electoral Count Act, right? right. That Congress has, and this was Ms. Cheney and Ms. Lofgren, two of our members that in a bipartisan way, co-sponsored a, a change or, or a, a, I won't really call it a radical change, but more of a clarification of the Electoral Count Act, what the role of the vice president is, the role of the states. It sort of makes clear what the joint certification process is all about. If there was any uncertainty that the president tried to suggest that there was, it has now been eliminated by the responsible clarification of that statute. There are other things that we haven't done yet, and Jill, you're right. I think one of the big ones is the way in which we assess, disseminate, and operationalize information about domestic terrorism, domestic violent extremism. We keep getting this wrong. Like in, I went I did a big report about the Charlottesville events. And similarly, that that was not an intelligence failure or a resource failure. It was really clear in advance based on the intel that there were people coming that were dangerous, that were bent on violence. Similar, January 6th was not an intelligence failure or a resource failure. It was a failure to appreciate the real threat. And why that is, it's, there's a lot of reasons for that. We don't share information among agencies. The FBI, I think, puts undue restrictions based on First Amendment or free association concerns. They won't take any action unless a specific piece of open source information is sufficiently specific and credible to open a preliminary investigation. So they don't do anything prophylactic, you know, knock on the door and ask someone who's on Facebook with an AK-15 saying this is 1776. They don't do anything with that information unless it rises to the level of specificity to be a threat. That's a problem. And look, some of it is straight up racism, right? I, I think it's the way that we, that law enforcement assesses danger is infected by implicit bias, right? We, you look at the difference between the way we prepared for the George Floyd protests in the summer of 2020 no, with no. a very heavy approach versus if it's a bunch of white guys that are talking about you know, storming the Capitol, we are you know, sort of curiously and surprisingly passive when it comes to that. So I think we got to talk about implicit bias in law enforcement and how we assess danger and whether race infects that. All these things are really important. They need to be talked about in Congress. They need to be talked about within these agencies. I'm hopeful that our report planted some of those seeds and our recommendations, which are sort of more of an issue spot, will prompt some of that in discussion.
0: Absolutely. I really hope. I mean, I don't know if I have much uh, hope left in this Congress, but hopefully the next it. Congress elect will take up some of those recommendations because they're so important. Um, but let's talk about some other accountability um, and, and shift gears to some other news regarding generistics. Most notably last week, um, there is news that four members of the Proud Boys were found guilty of seditious conspiracy, including one who was not at the Capitol or even in D.C. Um, a few months later, members of the Oath Keepers were also found um, guilty of seditious conspiracy. So do you think this opens the door to successfully charging Trump with seditious conspiracy, possibly? I think the key for seditious
2: conspiracy, Victor, is intent to do violence. So there's evidence that Stuart Rhodes and the Oath Keepers, Enrique Terrio and the Proud Boys specifically intended to violently disrupt the lawful function of government. That's seditious conspiracy. Yeah. In order for President Trump to be charged with seditious conspiracy, there needs to be evidence that he too specifically intended violence. What we found was that he lots of evidence that he specifically intended to obstruct, interfere with, or impede the joint session by sending that, you know, firing up that angry mob sending them to the Capitol and then not doing anything as they were violently protesting. But did he intend violence? Is there evidence of his intent to use violence? That's a much higher Mm. standard. I'm not sure. I I think I'm sure that they're looking at that. We recommend in our report that that is a charge that they should evaluate. I can't say that we found direct evidence of the president's intent that violence be used. I think part of the the conspiracy hope that that, that just the the presence of all of those people would put pressure on the vice president and members of Congress to essentially not go forward with the joint session. Whether they intended a riot, intended, they certainly knew it was possible because of the intelligence, but did they intend it? I don't know. It's a charge on the table. I think it's less likely seditious conspiracy than uh, obstruction of an official proceeding. That's likely the lead charge that the special counsel is evaluating. So there's, of course,
1: news now that Mike Pence testified before the special counsel yeah. and um, th- that Jack Smith actually was there during his testimony, uh, which, he, of course, it would be impossible for the special counsel to be present every time a witness testifies at their grand yeah. jury. Um, but what do you make of that? Do you think that's an indication that things are moving fast in the Jack Smith investigation? Do you think that that's yeah. last witness, or are we in for more prolonged issues?
2: Uh, I think the good question. You know, I think that all of the answer to all those questions is likely yes. You, you, don't, you know, the, the, the playbook is that you sort of build up to the most important witnesses. Right. You want to be as smart as possible when yeah, you interview yeah. arguably the, the central witness in this whole thing. Other than President Trump is is the vice president, so you don't want to do that until you're confident you have as much of the story and you're prepared for that. We didn't make a you know get a final response from the vice president until very close to the end of our discussions with him. I doubt that his grand jury testimony created anything really new in terms of direction of the investigation. We knew a lot already about his position on his authority direct communications with the president. He had spoken publicly and written about that. So I, I'm not sure that it there were any new bombshell facts or maybe some context and some, some clarification. But the fact that it's from him, right. the fact that it is direct yeah. from the vice president who was 40 feet at one moment from rioters inside the Capitol. Right? His lived experience as a victim on January 6th, his direct communications yeah. with the president, when they called him is the, the awful word. <laughs> Jill mentioned earlier on the phone that morning, like getting his account of that, even though we kind of knew what he was going to say, it's really important. So I do think it's important. I do think it matters a lot. I do think it suggests that they're close to the end. If They're talking to the vice president, putting him in the grand jury. There can't be many more, you know, sort of big picture witnesses left to go. I think it suggests they're getting close. I think this summer or fall, the latest is when a charging decision is made. They want to do it before the beginning of the primary season in, in early twenty-four.
1: Yeah. One of the hardest things for prosecutors is knowing when to stop, when enough is enough, because you can in any of these, you know, I started in organized crime, but even in Watergate, you could investigate forever because there was so much going on. But at some point you have to say, "Okay, this is a good case. I'm going to bring this. I can add another case later if I need to. But at least I have to get going because otherwise justice... Delayed becomes justice denied, and so. Well,
2: you can also note from your organized crime work that what happens is that say they build, they bring a case against five people. You know, two or three of them may decide, you yeah, know, I don't want to go to jail for President Trump. I'm gonna, I'm gonna cooperate, right? You, you often get right, right. indictment right. cooperation information. Cases get stronger, and then there's a superseding indictment and additional charges for exactly people are added. I wouldn't be shocked here if, if the indictment is, is a conspiracy and some of those conspirators when they're finally facing a federal judge charged with crimes may decide uh, to, to not assert a Fifth Amendment privilege but actually cooperate and make right. the case even stronger. Right.
0: Yeah. So um, this might be a pretty big question, but um, how do we prevent another January 6th from happening?
2: Question. Look, uh, to me, Victor,
0: um, this
2: whole episode showed me that uh, democracy is is earned, not given, that, that we all have yeah. to realize that it comes down to people doing the right thing. And if everybody in America actively participated in our democracy, I think it would be stronger. I think what happens, yes. it, going back to that point about cynicism, is, is that a lot of people their cynicism takes the form of, of apathy and lack of participation. So they sort of sit back and they don't vote or, or they don't pay close enough attention. And that gives more power to people that, that have a, really that more cynical view. I think if everybody in America were to actively participate in their community uh, and, and to care about big issues, um, I think we would have a better, more functional democracy. So my hope is that part of the way we prevent another attack on the Capitol is that this is the wake up call. For a lot of people, hey, I got to do my part, right? I've got to pay attention, I've got to vote, I've got to engage, and that it, it gets more people off their couch or off the sidelines, right? President Obama often says, you know, for every one of these steps backward, it unleashes a more powerful response. You look at Parkland and the shooting and the, the activism that unleashed or the Me Too movement, and, and right? When there are these awful things that happen, there's a potential for in response to that, for people to get engaged. I hope that that's that's what happens. More and more people plug in. democracy has to be something that we earn day to day.
1: It's really a remarkable set of facts that have existed. And it all depends on getting conflicting ideologies or conflicting slates of facts. Uh, And and really there is no such thing as conflicting slates of facts. There's real facts and fake news alternative facts, and I'm hoping that we can find a way to get through to people. But for a last question, I want to ask you, I mean, having been part of one of the most exciting things of the last, you know, quarter century, how does it feel to then transition to private practice? Um, Are you missing Hmm. all the excitement Mm -hmm. of being (laughs) daily in the news?
2: (laughs) Uh, I, I Look, it was hard. It was grueling. I, I live in Charlottesville. I was away from my family for a long time. It was one of those experiences that was so completely consuming that even when I was home, I was kind of distracted. I, I feel fortunate to have had a chance to do it. And yeah, I absolutely miss you know being at the center of a really important investigation. That said, I'm hopeful that it translates to to do continue to do important investigative work in private practice. Right, I want to be one of those lawyers that when there is a crisis of some kind in a community, in a company, in a university, whatever it is, I can you know help sort out what happened, who's responsible, and try to leave the place better than it was before. That's the kind of practice that I'm. I aspire to build at Wilkie far where I work now and I hope Jill that it gives me an opportunity to continue to do that kind of good work in different settings. I
1: wish you the
0: best. Yeah. hope hope that that that's true. Thank you. So, so, so we often end by um, asking our guests their advice for young people. But I, as, in my understanding, it seem, uh, it appears that um, law school decisions have come down. People are making decisions to go to law school. What is your advice to law school students as they enter their one L years um, and, their, and their journey in the law?
2: Yeah, so I just finished teaching a class at the law school at UVA called Law and Riots. It's about the intersection of free speech and public safety and yeah, yeah. how hard it is to protect both. So, so I have had this conversation with, with my students uh, at UVA. Look, I, I think the law is a tool. I, I went to law school because I wanted to have this a skill that I could use to do justice. Right? It sounds sort of hokey and high-minded, but when you have something in your in your head that gives you the ability to use a system that is there to make sure that the world is fair, that there's order, that there's justice, man, take advantage of that. So my advice to law students is find a way to use that considerable opportunity for good. Whatever it is that's important to you, whether it's your full-time job or something you do as a pro bono matter or something you do for your friends and family, use that skill to make the world more fair and just and humane place. There are lots of ways to do that, big and small. You don't have to work on something like the select committee to do that. You can do that in your own life. So I hope law students feel that privilege, but with that privilege comes responsibility.
1: You know, you quoted uh, President Obama before, and right after he left the presidency, he spoke at the Economic Club of Chicago, and in answer to one question, he said, the best advice I have is to be informed." and be involved. And I think that's true for not just law students, it's college graduates, it's high school graduates, it's everyone, you have to be informed. And that means getting your news from reliable sources or multiple sources and deciding which one you really actually think is true. So I agree. Yeah, I, I hope that that's what your students will learn from you as well. And we yeah, thank yes. you for being with us today. It's been a great conversation. Last question, though, is just to remind everyone why January 6th matters today. Why did we spend mm, time talking about it?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah it matters because it almost worked. You no, know, I, I kind of went into this thing, yeah. you know, yeah. a lot of angry people, law enforcement was there. No, it was close to being, when you step back and think, we we almost had a, a literal an, an interruption in the peaceful transfer of power, bedrock principle of this country. That's kind of scary. But for the action, first of all, the bravery of the Capitol police officers that defended physically de- defended members of Congress and, and everyone at the Capitol, and the courage of people like my Pence, like Raffensperger, like Bill Barr, right, that did the right thing, even if it was against their personal interests this could have been different. So if nothing else, hopefully we rang the bell that again, this almost worked, we have to do better in the future or it could be successful the next time. I, I hope that going back to the discussion of recommendations and, and issues that we flag, it's less likely to happen in the future. Um, I don't know, I think a lot can happen between now and January 6th of 2025 I'm hopeful that the arc of justice continues to bend toward justice and and, uh, we're on the two two steps forward phase.
0: Again thank you. Thank you so much. Yes thank Thank you for all that you do and thank you for coming on today. That was such an interesting episode Jill Um, and and I know we want to get into the news that just broke before we went live. Um, Do you want to walk us our audience through it? I mean it's so exciting and your pins have never been more spot on than today, I feel like.
1: I felt it was inevitable. Well, I did take notes as the jury verdict was being read. And so let me be be factual about this. Yes. The the jury had to answer a series of questions and I will not be able to explain one of their answers. The first answer was, Mm -hmm. do you find that he is liable for rape? And the jury said no. Then they said, but he is liable in answer to question two for sexual abuse. And based on yes. the testimony, I cannot tell you why you could find sexual abuse, but not the rape. She's testified. She had two witnesses corroborate that it happened. She had two other witnesses who said, This is what he did to me. You had his own voice saying, This is what I do to women. And the All three of them who testified that he did it to them followed. But anyway, yes to sexual abuse. And was she injured by that? Yes. $2 million worth of injury from that sexual abuse. That's question four. Question five. Was this willful and reckless? Yes. $20,000. Defamatory? Yes. False? Yes. As by clear and convincing evidence? yes. Um, Then we go to eight, which is, was there actual malice? Yes. Injury by the defamation? Yes. $1 million for reputation repair. I'm sorry, for other than reputation repair from the defamation. 1.7 from reputation repair. And it was actual malice. And two hundred and eighty thousand dollars for punitive damages for that leading to a total of five million dollars five million one two one one seven two hundred and eighty and twenty so you put it all together and and keep in mind that the jury verdict was reached in less than three hours
0: three hours yeah
1: that's That means there was unanimous agreement from the very beginning. The evidence was clear and convincing. I hope it will inspire some of the other women who have been assaulted by him, and the many who have been defamed by him, to sue him. There's, yeah, there is a way forward. There is a way to do this, and
0: the law works. Hopefully, it goes even beyond those those women and shows every single person who was ever sexual assault or abuse that they can come yeah. forward and speak their truth and get their day in court and get justice and that's kind of this, this whole process is so important because we have this traditional notion where people are scared to run power and something they're abusers but today is sort right. of an indication that you know it is possible for you to go in court and get what you want and seek that justice so uh, I, I really hope like you said it inspires people to do the same.
1: Not just women,
0: but
1: anybody who is anyone, yeah, defamed, yeah, yeah, defamed or sexually assaulted. If you remember we had on this show um, a young man who had been sexually assaulted yes. by his yes. boss, and that's yep. almost even yep. harder than for a woman to come forward. So it's it it's 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 tough. And I mean, on the other hand, anyone watching this will see how she was bullied during the cross-examination. I think personally that that helped her in a sense because a jury gets angry when they see someone being abused and she was yeah. abused by Takapina. Um, yeah. So this was good. And it, it does show uh, in the same way that the Proud Boys conviction of someone who wasn't in Washington can be guilty shows that there is a path forward against those who led and planned and strategized for this, including the yes, Willard yes. Hotel war room people. So, um, and the Oval Office occupant. So I, yeah, I think yeah. we've learned a lot in the last few days. Uh, uh, what a week this has been. It's
0: it oh, what amazing. a week. And it's only Tuesday. It's only Tuesday. And I've been reading the comments that we've been getting in. Uh, people have been saying we should get on people like Lisa Rubin, maybe even you know, herself yes. or her lawyers. Um, so we'll we'll try to get that content to you in the coming weeks, because this is, is such an important case, and no one should um, underestimate just how important it is. But in the remaining time that we have left, should we talk about, I mean, Well, well I just want to say,
1: Lisa Rubin has been amazing in covering Phenomenal. this case. And in her yes. con commentary has been just brilliant. And of course, Roberta Kaplan did an amazing job in her presentation and her willingness to take this on. It's not that easy yes. to take on even a criminal president. Um, so this was amazing. And I'm, I'm very, I, I, I think we should try and hopefully those people are listening to us and they will be willing to join us.
0: Yes, absolutely. Well, in the remaining time that we have left, last Monday was College Commitment Day. Jill, I know you're speaking to the University of Illinois this weekend. Your um, your parting advice for graduates, but maybe we can talk about advice for students who are either graduating high school or college um, and, and some of the advice you have and, and maybe we have for uh, those students.
1: Oh, I hate to give away my whole speech before uh, <laughs> my, I give it. and And it's It's really hard not to fall into cliches at this moment. It's very easy to do that. And I guess I will talk more generally about, I don't think anyone will remember what I say in the same way that I have no idea what anyone said at any of my commencements. And I'm not even sure I remember who spoke at my commencement, but there is something to be said about how you make people feel. And I hope that I can inspire people. And I, I I didn't think of this until just now, but I just got birthday wishes from a nine year old. And I don't think I've shared this with you yet, Victor,
0: I will send you,
1: but it, I mean, I read this note and I almost was reduced to tears. And I just want to say she, she, listens to BBC Outlook, which is where she heard me. And she started the letter, an email through my website. Um, And it wasn't until well into it that she said, and I'm nine years old. And I was like shocked and amazed. And I think in the same way that I was inspired by people I saw speak on my college campus, Nancy Haunchman Dickerson being one of them, and by some of my professors, Professor Carey at the University of Illinois, Professor Rosenberg at law school, Professor Nagel at the University of Illinois, I hope that maybe students will listen and remember at least being inspired by the person that spoke to them, even if they don't remember the words they say. And to go for it. If you want to do something, do it. If I can do it, so can you. I was an
0: ordinary,
1: average person and nothing particular. And my parents somehow raised me to think I could do it. And thank you, parents. Um, I hope your parents are doing the same for you. And if not, I hope you will take from me who is old enough to be your grandmother. (laughs) You can do it and you have to try.
0: Yes, no, that is so true. And and, and I, I, I don't have that much advice for uh, high students. But I, I will say, as I'm graduating next year, I have, I've been thinking about, you know, my college experience so far. And it's just kind of, you'll never get this moment again. I mean, college is so unique. Yeah. It is such an amazing moment to learn new things, meet new people, go to different events. I mean, you're just constantly... Kind of learning new things and um take advantage of that and if you're going into college congratulations um if you're thinking of you know what you want to do with the next four years just try to soak it all in and um i I, i'm not looking forward to the day that i graduate because i know i'm going to have to enter the real world but um just in the remaining year that i have left it's i think the lesson has been just soak in all of it because there's so much in college there is and you should be
1: open to changing where you started i started in occupational therapy and I moved on to journalism and then on to law. And then after practicing law into business and then into education and now onto television, I mean, it's life is not linear and you just have to be yeah. available for the opportunities and willing to take a risk, Uh calculated yes. risk. You don't want, don't want to do stupid things. You don't want to jump without a parachute, but you know, there are ways to, take expansion and ideas and move forward. So that's, yes. I think what my advice would be. And, um, you know, you and I have talked about little details of networking, how important that is yes, yes. making people feel comfortable by making them talk about themselves. That's the best way to meet people and to also learn, but learning, I think you hit it, you know, learning, 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 that's, you know, you'll never have a chance to take a course in Russian literature again. You know, it's <laughs> just do it. It's fascinating.
0: Or, well, in- I mean, there are so many things. There are so many things that we could talk about. That I mean, even kind of school doesn't teach you things like networking, how to how to have those conversations. Um, that can be in, uh, like its own episode. I feel like. Okay, maybe
1: we'll do one of those episodes. <laughs> yeah. We we can try it. So thank you, Victor, <laughs> for this conversation, and um, I, I hope I can hone it down somehow to give wise advice without sounding
0: yes silly. Well, hopefully, hopefully, your graduation speech is recorded, um, so we can all we can all watch it um, later. But I, I know for anyone in our audience, feel free to kind of drop your advice for gra- graduating high schoolers or college students. Um, We'll take a read and and maybe you can inspire Jill to um, think of or include one of one of your pieces of advice.
1: Better yet, tweet me at Jill Wine Banks and and tell me what I should say, because I'm still writing and I am open to anything that you either would like to hear if you were in the graduating class or that you heard at your own graduation that has stayed with you. That would be really great if I could get that input. Thank you all for cooperating with that.
0: <laughs> yes, tweet to Jill Winebanks, and uh, uh, we look forward to hearing from you. And thank you all for watching this episode of iGen Politics with. Tim Hefe. Uh We hope uh, we will see you next week for another episode of I, Politics. Be sure to like and subscribe right here on youtube.com slash Politicon if you're watching so you don't miss an episode. Or if you're listening, be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating so you don't miss our episodes every Wednesday. Uh, again, thank you for watching or listening, and we will see you next week.